Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast video for readers, writers, and the crime genre industry. I'm absolutely thrilled today to be bringing you one of my favorite crime authors, Rick Mofina. Rick has been writing thrillers for a very long time, and he's got an exceptional body of work. If you will go to his website, rickmofina.com, you're going to find such wonderful titles as Six Seconds, Missing Daughter, um, geez, just to name a few, Before Sunrise, um, Dangerous Women and Desperate Men. There's just so many incredible titles that he's got. Um, did I mention The Blood of Others? Uh, I, the list goes on and on and on. And yes, you're right. I am starstruck to have Rick Mofina on the show today. I hope you'll enjoy hearing from him as much as I enjoy having him here. And I've worked closely with Rick for quite a while now, and um, I've come to know him over the years. He's an incredible scholar, a great gentleman, and uh, he's a former journalist. So I'm going to let him tell you more about himself. But that's just to give you a little bit of a flavor of who you're going to be hearing from today. Now, before I get to that, I want to talk to you, of course, as I always do, a little bit about our upcoming anthology. Carrick Publishing will be bringing out in the fall of 2020, titled A Grave Diagnosis. Story submissions are now closed, so I hope you got your story in before the June 1st deadline. If you didn't, then look for us next time. We do these anthologies um, pretty much every other year, so, so watch for those. Um, again, it's titled A Grave Diagnosis, and it's coming out in the fall of 2020, so watch for that. I also want to remind you that social distancing is still in effect, even though many businesses have now reopened for normal business, it's still a good idea to follow the protocols as much as you can. Wear a mask in public, keep your surfaces clean, the ones that are touched, wear gloves if you feel you're going to be touching surfaces that are questionable. Um, keep a distance of six feet between yourself and your work buddies or other people out in the public arena. So stay safe and stay well. We really care for all of you and we want you to stay safe and well. And now I'm thrilled to bring you Rick Mafina. Hi, Rick. Isolation is agreeing with you, is it? Yeah, I guess so. Well, I'm a hermit anyway, so. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I'm actually really getting into it, you know. <laughs> I kind of like it, yeah. Well, Rick, welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you today? I'm good, thank you very much. Good, I'm so glad to have you on. I kind of overhyped you a little bit, so uh, <laughs> don't be embarrassed when you hear the playback. I'm just thrilled to have you on. Oh, well, our, thanks very much, Doc. For our listeners, Rick is an extremely prolific crime writer, and uh, his thrillers have been on the bestseller list internationally for many years, and um, We've got some titles that are just outstanding, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about your titles and hear from you on that. Um, things like Six Seconds and um, Missing Daughter and uh, Before Sunrise. These are just exceptional titles, and uh, I know that this has got to harken back to your life as a journalist, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's true. I think uh, most of the books, just about all of them, I, I draw on some aspect of my background. Uh, yes is it a ring of truth for me? It just puts a little fuel in the tank uh, and then uh, the imagination takes over. Yes, but I'm thinking of the fact that they are so sudden and they're so urgent, these titles. Um, 
every one of them. It's like they're crafted for urgency. And you get that in journalism too, especially on the crime beats. Um, do you think that ties, is that deliberate or does that just come out of you naturally that way? Well, I think, it, 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 I guess it comes from my background and my training. It's that you really get, get to the point of the story in news reporting. Uh, and um, you're parachuted into various situations where it's just really chaotic and you've got to, you know, find order in the chaos, which sort of fits with crime fiction and uh, make things compelling because you just don't want to lose the reader. So, yeah, I write it, I guess, maybe in a type of evolving journalist style that was drilled into me over the years, which I quite liked. I thought that's exactly what Thomas Harris did, I think, in Silence of the Lambs, because he worked with the Associated Press for so long. You can see that in, in his structure. So mm -hmm. um, I do that as well. I, I'm guilty of that. And um, some readers uh, don't like it, but uh, fortunately, a lot of readers do. <laughs> a lot of readers do. A lot of readers do. And those readers have kept you on the bestsellers list on and off for many years, haven't they? And um, it's, 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 it's contagious reading your stories. You, you, you just want to keep going, you know? Um, as well as that journalist feel, though, that urgency, you've also got a real touch for the characters. You make them very human. And um, that's got to come from somewhere else in you, I think. Where does that well, come from? I think, again, the same thing. When you're, when you're meeting people, as a journalist, as a crime reporter, and anyone who's done this for a living uh, will, will know, um, it's universal in the sense that you're coming into their lives at the most dramatic time. And I guess that evolves into my fiction. And then, um, so you, you have to absorb as much as you can and you carry it. And a lot of the stuff uh, that you, you learn about people and that you experience in these dramatic situations never makes it into the story. Um, or if you can bring it in maybe poetically in a compressed way, you try to. But um, I think I've, maybe I've, I've saved all of that, as, as it were, to put it into the stories themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think it comes from that because I, you know, I'll, there are things you'll just never forget uh, about human reactions and, uh, and, and emotions and, and real life around you. I mean, I don't have, always have to draw on those experiences. So you know, you try to you try to shape uh, uh, people into people that we all know and love, so that you can relate to them. Yeah, and this is something that all good writers do—that they they have an ear for conversations and for the motivations behind the words um, and the actions, and uh, you know what's going on, and have that human empathy. Um, because sometimes when you look at a situation, it seems, you know, it seems very unbelievable until you put the human context in it, if I'm saying that correctly, you know? And sure. I find yeah. you do that, yeah. Yeah, you wanna make you want to make the characters as real as possible, as multidimensional as possible. And, um, you know, my wife and I have these discussions with books we read. You wanna make them um, not wooden, but, uh, you know, you wanna think ahead, what, how would a real person react? Yes. Um, to a certain situation. And what would the, re the reader would be thinking? Well, I would do this or I would do that. And if it's realistic, then they're along for the ride. But the minute that you say, well, you know, um, you have your character doing something totally implausible or just unnatural because it's got to fit the plot, mm -hmm. you kind of lose them. And, and you lose credibility with the reader as well. I mean, they will go so far if the story's compelling. And I'm, I'm not being judgmental in anyone else's stories because it's very, very difficult. And there are times I assure you do have to bend the rules and ask the reader um, for the suspension of disbelief. 
Mm-hmm. But um, if you're true to the nature of uh, what people, how people act and feel, what you think they would do, um, I think the reader will will go along with you. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And you have really got a very good touch for that. I just want to say for our listeners, I know you know it, but we'll let them know it. If they haven't read Rick Mafina yet, they absolutely must. Now, um, your body of work is staggering, to say the least. How many titles have you got now, full-length titles? Full-length titles that, um, well, with uh, July, it'll be 25. And in July, you've got something called Their Last Secret coming out. That's, uh, that's, that's the one in July. That'll be number 25. It's done, ready to go, and that'll be released at the end of July. It'll be like a summer book. And it'll wow. be in um, uh, paperback, what they call the tall format, the, the brick, mm-hmm. as some people call it, the, the, the taller paperback. Um, audio and um, e-edition as well. I've always, I've always been in paperback, I, and I, I'm comfortable as a paperback writer. Yes. Yes, yes, I can see that. <laughs> um, their last secret, is it going to be available for pre-order? It is available for pre-order now. Okay. And it's not finished yet. I'm still working on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm still on the first draft. And this is the first, as I was mentioning, um, that I've never had a book be put up for pre-order when I haven't even completed it yet. My editor hasn't seen it. No one has seen it. It's not done. But we've agreed on the title and the synopsis uh, for the cover is up as well. So that's not, it's a very um, weird feeling to have something out there and people pre-ordering it that you haven't even finished yet. It's kind of like a kite flying up there out of reach. Yeah, yeah, in a way. And I was saying to my wife, it's kind of like when, when people line up two or three days before something opens and I think, well, this, does, this book won't be released until I think March of 2021. So it's a little ways off, but people are pre-ordering it already. People who know your work are pre-ordering it. Of course they are. And I mean, I will be, and I'll definitely be recommending it. Well, thank so, you. Thank yes. you. It puts a little pressure on me. I was like, yes, no pressure. No pressure, Rick. Get typing what the hell are you doing talking to me <laughs> well, i finished the chapter this morning so i'm guessing so, yeah. excellent excellent well i twisted your arm awfully hard that's why oh. you're talking to me <laughs> I i'm happy that this is fun so. now you actually went on the crime beat as a journalist and what was the most frightening situation that you uh, were involved in even if it was just peripherally Oh, there were many. Um, they varied. Um, we were on, on a small plane um, trying to land in Tabor in southern Alberta during a bit of a snowstorm. And um, there had been a school shooting there, and that was not too far long after Columbine had happened. And I'd been in Denver um, to report on Columbine and got back. And uh, within a few weeks, we had a shooting in Canada at a small school in a small town, Tabor, which is near. Lethbridge, and we were flying down myself and a photographer to join other reporters around the way because it was a huge story. And the plane and the first attempt, the pilot came in sideways, was like a little crop duster and a little airstrip. The second one, he we got bumped around, and then the, after the third, he couldn't land. He had to abort because he was only allowed by law to make three attempts because the weather was so bad. And I thought, hmm, this this could be it because we we were coming in in all different directions on that small plane. And I had a job offer in my back pocket to uh, come to Ottawa and join the National News Service. I thought, well, that would be just great. <laughs> that yeah. was scary. Um, other times, um, 
there was a SWAT type situation at night with the Calgary police and the photographer and I got inside the perimeter. And when the dramatic arrest was made, the photographer shot the picture, which he should do with a flash. And the officers didn't know we were there and they turned and pointed a gun at us and they had a few choice words, but uh, um, my stomach kind of went up there. <laughs> Yeah, Wait, yeah, sure. uh, not worth dying for, but um, but fortunately that all worked out. But uh, yeah, that's part. You're of still it. here, and the photographer is still with us. Yes, we're uh, uh, that, that <laughs> another time. Um, when I was in uh, Kuwait, um, we uh, during um, uh, the the first Gulf War had ended, and there was uh, tensions were mounting again for the second, and the the border between Iraq and Kuwait was. Uh, considered off limits and no man's land as it were and we got a call myself and a photographer were on assignment there tensions were mounting and we got a chance to uh, go right up to the border with UN forces who were Canadian uh, which we were not allowed to do but we got snuck right up to the border and that was very tense um, at that time mm -hmm. and they were telling us too how the dunes were still loaded with mines the, the mines floated like um, landmines floated in the dunes when the wind shifted and uh, to not to drive ever drive off the road, um, and you could still see the wreckage from the war. I never reported on the war itself, but we were there after, and tensions were mounting until um, they brokered a deal to stand down. They were moving aircraft carriers into the Gulf, and all personnel were told to leave, and we were flying in, and the only people on the planes were um, journalists from Europe, and, and we were kind of out of our depth from Calgary. Uh, covering us. So there were many and there was uh, another time in Africa where um, we were with uh, Prime Minister Chrétien and the, um, it wasn't our motorcade but the first press pool got shot at by um, Nigerian security. Um, everyone was fine, it was a, it just a mistake, there was no harm done, a few bullet holes here and there. But it was not us, um, you know, we were in the second pool so we were fine, but little things. But but very close, very close, uh, too close for comfort, really. And that kind of anxiety is a physical presence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in situations, and there were many fires I went to, um, forest fires, uh, large complex fires as well. My wife always knew when I got home because she could smell the smoke uh, on mm -hmm. the boat and stuff like that. But, um, but you know, uh, you're doing your job and, um, you know, uh, mountains of respect for all the first responders back then you had relationships they wanted the right information out they knew that you had to get the information you knew where to go what to do that sort of thing once once yeah. you learned the ropes uh things went pretty well and then you, you everybody did their job yeah um, but yeah it was uh it was quite dramatic and quite stressful at times especially when you were sent on assignment somewhere yeah uh, and i had been sent all over death row um uh, a death row case, a couple of them were quite dramatic. Um, and then um, chasing down the Briex scandal from days gone by. Oh, yes, yes. I worked for the, the people in the Northern Miner during that. So uh, I was very, there was a, an excellent book titled um, Briex Gold Today, Gone Tomorrow, if you ever get a chance. It's just a, it's a real read. Like you wouldn't think it would be, but it really is. Um, <laughs> it's really something. And and you covered that, did you? That was quite a story. I got pulled in um, because um, all they had for um, one of the Briex players, the big one from Calgary, well, all of Rose out of Calgary, was an unlisted phone number in Bahamas, in Nassau. 
And I had been there before on my own, but they sent me down and said, you have one week. All you have is this unlisted phone number. What we want is you to find the, apparently the dream house that the guy bought and get a, get a sense of what his life is like. Mm-hmm. So that took mm-hmm. some digging of two and three days and then, they, you know, and some real, real kind of stuff that would make for a good crime novel yes. and, uh, yes. and involved the jet ski, involved some, some covert meetings and uh, we got, we found it and, and I found people to talk to me and found the property and, and at the time he was still in Calgary, he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got a, I, I learned that the laws where you could go out to, to the the water, take a picture from the water because you couldn't see the property from, from the public street. Right. Of all the fauna and the palm trees and that. It was, oh, it's gorgeous. It was on Cable oh, Beach. Yeah. I don't know if you know NASA, it was on Cable Beach. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I took the, the jet ski, James Bond out and, and just took a picture from the water. <laughs> and, uh, I can see you. <laughs> we got it all confirmed that, that yes, this was the property. And, and uh, at the same time, we had a team too in, um, it was in Indonesia where the mine was and went yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Burma, right? Um, was it uh, Burma, I believe? I'm not, I can't recall. No, no, I'm not trying to say Burma. I'm trying to say the island in Indonesia. I think it starts with a B, so it's confusing me. Sorry. But anyway, those those were, oh, there were so many now. You're taking me down. There were years of stories like that. And um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and Columbine was was uh, gut-wrenching. That was that was quite quite a huge story. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Death row stuff. And, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it all works into your books. It all works into your books and into your short stories. So this is book 25, and you've also got countless short stories. How many short stories have you got? I honestly don't know. Not (laughs) too many. Um, A couple of uh, anthologies. Yeah. Um, And, you know, fortunately, some some had been recognized, and some had gone into collections. Mm -hmm. One with Peter Robinson, um, one in the U.K., uh, one with Michael Conley and um, one year best short stories with uh, a mm-hmm. U.S. publisher. So th- that's nice. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, it's, it's a special appetite for short stories. You find them, but most There people- is, there is, especially really, again, it's the human element in yours. And it's, um, I, I, I'm, I, I don't mean to just flatter you here, but that's what it is. I mean, you take the sense of urgency of a journalist, but also the human element and when you couple them you've really got something the stories i find really are quite poignant many of them well yeah i, I find they're little slices of, of life that um, you want to get an emotional punch out of them mm-hmm. i've always admired um Chekhov's short stories and Falkman short stories and hemingway short stories going way back yeah tried to emulate them as well um but yeah i mean you know you sort of your teeth way back in the day with short stories that's what i remember mm-hmm. as a kid when i was aspiring with creative writing um of course it was short stories you send them out they get rejected you send them out yeah and a check comes back and then so you build on that uh, mm-hmm. and then um and when it comes to the books i mean um when eventually i settled down on what it was i wanted to write which is a long story in, in and of itself uh but it was the kind of books i like to read i mean i like i like page turners mm-hmm. that kept me going and yeah. that weren't boring. And I thought, well, that's, you know, and then I got thinking, um, working in a newsroom is the drama of the newsroom itself, the stories themselves. Mm-hmm. There were so many um, uh, you know, crime fiction books that portrayed the media terribly and, and very yeah. stereotypical. 
typically. And then on the other side of the argument, I guess there, there were those uh, who were emerging at the time, Laura Lippmann and Michael Conley um, and um, John Sanford, who were portraying journalists um, accurately because they were journalists themselves. Mm -hmm. I had, I, don't know, I had thought this, this is great. There's somewhere in between, I think. Uh, and uh, I, so I sat down to, to write the first one. It took me a while. Mm -hmm. And I almost abandoned it, except for my wife. I showed it to her, and she said, "You've got to finish it." And that's all, all right. Thank was, God for the wife. Yes. No, <laughs> no comment. She knew exactly what she said. She didn't say it was good or bad. She just said, "Finish it." And I, I, oh, I. Well, what about this? What about just go back there and finish it? Which I did. Yeah, yeah. When you've got a good support yes. network, a good spouse, it makes the world a difference. Um, that I can definitely attest to. <laughs> my number one editor, my first editor, and, uh, and mm -hmm. that, I can remember there was a time when I ha uh, gave her a manuscript. I think it was The Dying Hour, and there was a scene that I thought was very creepy. She actually started laughing, and I could hear her pen shh, shh, crossing <laughs> it out. So that scene... Would, uh, that scene didn't survive. And it was. It was not. It was not scary. It was not well written. It was just. It had to go. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. But I could always hear her pen, just like yep. that. There you go. And you just know. You just know. It's like the COVID cuts, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, actually, you know, the the, um, the fact that you raise that is a good segue because one of the things I wanted to ask you is when you first started to tiptoe into crime writing. What was the thing that first made you nervous? What was the the mo the biggest fear about making this change in careers? Or was there no fear? Well, I was still I was I was secretly writing crime fiction. Okay. I didn't want to tell anybody about it at all. No one um, at my newspaper knew. None of my friends knew until um, the book was done. And then I went to just two trusted friends to read it first. Mm -hmm. I sought an agent and all of that. I didn't want to be. Uh, talking it up and be one of those people where you say, I'm writing a book today. And then, you know, every couple of weeks, how's the book going? How's the book going? Yes. Um, and I never wanted that because if I abandoned it, then nobody knew. I mean, my wife knew and there might have been one or two close non-journalist people who knew. You left yourself. Essentially no, no, yeah, but essentially no one knew. And I like that. So I could work quietly. So mm -hmm. I didn't have it. It was just it was just the doubt of can I do this? You know, I planned it. And it took me a couple of years off and on, um, and I was like, can I really do this? You know, um, and uh, you are now. I mean, you've done it magnificently, really. Okay. Uh, you've got another book coming out in 2021 titled um, "Searching for Her." Is that the right title? For her. Yeah, that's the one that uh, that's in progress right now. We were talking about earlier. That's the one I'm still working on. The one I just finished another chapter on down in my office, yeah. Um, and uh, that's the first time I've ever had one posted for, for pre-order before the book is completed. So That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Now, I got to talk to you about something a little more personal because we mentioned COVID cuts. <laughs> they don't just relate to edits. How are you managing to stay looking so well? Uh, you, can't get to a, you can't get out to a barber. Uh, <laughs> my, well, thank you. Uh, well, my my routine hasn't my routine hasn't changed that much, really, um, other than maybe visiting family um, every now and then. But I'm you know I'm pretty much I'm I'm blessed in that you know I pretty much stay at home and, and work, mm -hmm. and you know I go for walks where I sort of plot problems when I'm walking, and uh, sometimes I'm tapping on my phone a note to myself, or I, I take 
a chunk of the manuscript with me um, and walking dead end streets where the traffic's okay. Uh, But I really, uh, I really haven't, haven't uh, encountered anything other than, you know, I I have no complaints, you know, I've been lucky, we've been blessed. So other than that, because I have to say, um, I got a research trip done into uh, California and Nevada just before it came. And that was a critical research trip that I decided to take. It, it motivated me and it, and I'd answered a lot of uh, uh, questions for me that I had about what I was working, what I'm working on now. And I'd had mm-hmm. interviews set up as well with mm-hmm. law enforcement and that sort of thing. Something I hadn't done in a long time. So I had to really shake off my old, the dust off my old uh, journalist mm-hmm. uh, feet as it were. And then, um, and then we got back and started to work with, a, you know, all enthused and then COVID hit. Yeah. So I got in under the wire in that regard and um, had just signed a book deal and all of that. So, so it all worked out well for me in that regard. So um, that's true. Oh, I think with a lot of other authors too, there's the whole issue is how do you, for works in progress now, how do you deal with the virus in terms of storytelling? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the how do you, how do you, let me ask you that because I, Think, that is a big question. I think, in my opinion, I think it's going to vary from author to author and tell in, in, uh, in terms of the type of story you write. Yeah. So I'm looking ahead because this story I'm working on doesn't come out till essentially almost a year from now, maybe a little less. Um, so I make reference to it, uh, but it's mm-hmm. not, the story is not about that. Yeah. So, you know, there may be scenes that might not ring true, but I'm not going to tie myself up over it in terms no. of. You know, if I put someone in a mall or I put someone in a restaurant or I put someone there, but um, I think it, in my case, I think it's fair that if someone brings it up, I just mentioned, well, during COVID this happened, during COVID that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the best I can do. Um, yeah. So I'm not really writing about that. I did, and people have asked me, oh, are you going to write um, a COVID thriller? And I'm like, well, <laughs> Oh, and I don't know who. probably going to be done to death by the time this is all over anyway. Yeah, it? and it was like, you know, with 911, uh, 9-11, everybody, um, 9-11, you know, those questions came up. Oh, you know, how soon is too soon when you make reference to it? You know, that was a different thing, but. It was a different and, thing, yeah. yeah. That came to live in our memory. So you can, you make reference to that. And I had in books because when I, for one of my books, when I talked to the FBI in, uh, at the field office in Manhattan, which is right down, not too far from the scene. And they, they I arranged it, it took a while, to, you know, and they say, yeah, come on in, we'll talk to you. And they did. And then, and as they're walking around to the rooms, you know, just to point out a few things up on the, whatever we were, the 20th floor, uh, they said, oh, you know, we have, um, I knew they lost one guy in, in the towers. He was working at the time in the, in the towers. Mm-hmm. And they just happened to mention, oh, you know, we saw one of the planes go by here. And I went, well, I'm using that. And I did. So that's how I made it yeah. relevant when I used that scene. Um, there's that. And then um, there were others. So in, in my case, I think, uh, in my opinion, I think it's just going to vary from author to author. It depends on yeah, your story. It's got to be organic, I think. If it's organically a part of your story, you'll know. Yeah, yeah if it's organic, that's exactly... Uh, you raise a good point about the sensitivity of readers, too. I mean, it, it's a tough call. Um, when I wrote Golden Fishes about the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, and I said it in Indonesia, um, 
and again, <laughs> I can't even come up with the name of the island right now, but it did feature uh, elements of the Briex scandal too, because I had just been researching that. So it kind of fit in together. Um, but yeah, it was a tough one because so many did. I mean, it was tough to walk around that sensitivity. And the only way I could approach it was not even as a novel, but to go with the true timeline of what really happened, according to, I had about six different news sources I was following every day and, you know, tried to take the, the real stories from there. So. Well, I think too, I mean, you know, you, 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 as you say, it, it's sort of really a matter of relevance in terms of, you know, you mentioned historical facts in fiction as they apply and as you need them. But I remember just reading something recently that Sinclair Lewis said, you know, um, people read nonfiction for information, they read fiction for emotion. So, yeah. so, but, but with COVID there is emotion as well. So, so it's a matter of how you're gonna weave it into your story. It's, it's a tricky bit of, uh, of yeah. uh, tapestry work, I think, so. Yeah, it is, it is. It'll be a bit of a tap dance, I think, for people. Yeah, and I did, I did a, myself i mean I, I tell people I, I did a bit of an apocalyptic uh, type of virus novel with the panic zone way back mm -hmm. um and uh and so i had fun with that as it were um you know that was a deliberate attempt for someone to annihilate the human race you know it was a little bit mm -hmm. overblown uh but i i i looked into all the research i i could find and um and just created a scary book, and uh, and I tell people uh, that's that's my kick at the can, as it were. So we'll be. That's another of your great titles, though, the Panic Zone. And the other thing that I wanted to touch on um, is your covers, because you have just stellar covers. Um, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's a bad one in the lot. Um, <laughs> I have nothing to do with that directly. I mean, what uh, in my contracts I have uh, input. And the publisher has always asked for my input right off. I mean, we, we've been through it, but I don't have veto. I'm not, I'm not that high up the food chain that some have veto. I know, I think it was Tess Gerritsen had said she did never ever wanted to have a brown cover. She just didn't like brown. Okay. Like, well, what chocolate would be. You know. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, I have input. So usually what happens, they ask me what my ideas are. What do I think? What's a concept? And, and they invite me to send, if I send photos, I've even sketched um, anything, you know, and they'll look at it and they'll come back and say, okay, there's this or the, or a variation, or they'll come back and they said, well, we're going a completely different way. What do you think of this? And they'll send me a concept, which is usually pretty good. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that's how it works. It's a bit of a collaboration, but not entirely so. <laughs> yes. Yes. But, but it's good that they do get a little bit of a conceptual uh, input from you. I, I well, like that. It's a starting point. I mean, and I know the, the cover artists are very busy. Um, got Mira and Harper Collins and Harlequin. They're all in amalgamation now. Uh, yeah. but I know they're extremely busy. I mean, I've been in, I've been in the offices and I've seen the, you know, I think they put out where they did, you know, a hundred titles a month and, and, you know, there's a lot of covers to deal with. So. That's really something. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. I'm just happy to be part of it. The big machinery it's all yeah yeah exactly exactly part of the book industry i mean i i just love it myself so uh, i'm yeah. looking on that yeah yeah, yeah. and well, uh, the reward is always hearing back from readers it's, it's really nice that's right and you do get a lot of feedback from readers i i see so much positive stuff like they just love it they they really do consider you a page turner so well, that's uh, something to you know <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you know, I, that's, that's what I look for in, in the books I read. And, uh, and I tend to, what I, I'm, I mean, my personal reading habits are, I, I'm, I like to read something classic at mm -hmm. night. <laughs> uh, and if I'm reading something like mine, I read that in the day because I made the mistake early on and you get the adrenaline gets going. I can't get to sleep because I get jacked up for reading something yeah. that's a real good page turner. So I save that for the day, keeps me awake. Yeah. <laughs> and I can handle it in the day. And then, uh, you know, I'm going back and reading all the biggest books that people say they're going to read but never have, and I'm I'm tackling them all. And, That's and a good thing to do. Life. That's a good thing to do. Uh, our kids have been kind of doing that, which uh, makes me really happy. You know, uh, we'll ask them, "What have you been doing?" Well, I've been reading um, "One Red Gone with the Wind," oh, "One Red uh, on the Road." Um, oh. You know, they're they're really really doing it. Uh, <laughs> It's so good for them. Great. That's great. Yeah. And you know, uh, now that I'm reading um, in my older years, I mean, there's an appreciation for why those books are still around. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. Dickens holds up pretty good. And uh, so does Oh, Dickens. Dickens yeah. Good. yeah. My first love, my first love was Dickens without a word of a lie. And uh, I, I got to tell you, we're watching right now Bleak House. Oh, which yeah. is one that got by me. I never read it. So it's really fun to be watching it because I don't know where it's going. You know, I mean, all the others that we've ever watched, I've known where they were going. And it was just about the tapestry of how they did it, you know? So. When I, I was in London, uh, my one and only time for a week, uh, one and only time so far, and I made an effort to get to the Dickens house that you can, you pay your 10 bucks or something, go in. It was a very quiet day and, uh, and I could wander around. So I was in the room that they said was the writing room. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so I sat at the little table and one of the um, uh, curators came by and said, oh, you know, he died at that table. I mean, not in this room, but that, that's the table. And the chair was from his newspaper days or something, his journalist days. Wow. And then behind uh, was a stand and in the case was the first edition of A Christmas Carol. Oh, and wow. I so wanted to steal that book and take I'll it. I bet you did. And that would have been a crime novel in and of itself. But, I had probably two or three minutes totally alone sitting at that desk and looking out into his courtyard and I thought, well, this is pretty cool. I like That's it. pretty special. That's pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing well, rubbed off, but, uh, but it was fun. <laughs> well, we've been really blessed because we're kind of all trapped in the house together. We've got the whole family. So it's kind of like, a, you know, this is probably going to be the last time because our youngest is 17. And, um, you know, our oldest is 35 and due, due to a set of events, he had just moved back home. Okay. So we're all kind of here together for probably the last time. So, you know, and our middle one is a very techno savvy. So he's been helping me with all this, so. Well, I would say that's silver linings, you know. Yeah, silver linings. We missed our Europe trip. I had a big birthday. Not real big, of course, but, <laughs> <laughs> but big enough. And we were going to go to uh, Paris. I had this uh, idea that I was going to sit in um, sit in a courtyard and sip wine, and you know. And then we were going to go to Barcelona from there. And uh, it was all about the art galleries. That's kind of what we're into, you know. So we didn't get to do that. So we're going to have to do that virtually, you know. Yeah. But you never know down the road. You never know. You never know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Maybe I'll have to write about it and that'll force me to have to go visit it, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
Rick, it's been an incredible pleasure having you on the show. Oh. I can't thank you enough and uh, really sincerely thank you. Oh, thank you, Donna. This has been great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're and welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it has been fun. And stay with me for just a second. Don't hang up. I want to thank Rick Mafina for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. Please come to our YouTube channel and uh, subscribe and like so that you can hear from all our great authors. Coming down the pike over the next few weeks, we've got Barbara Fradkin, and we'll also be speaking with Maureen Jennings, two authors that certainly you know and love. Uh, if you're a, an enthusiast of the crime genre at all, you're going to know those, those authors. So I look forward to bringing them to you. I also want to thank Ted Carrick, the composer and producer of our music for Dead to Rights, the podcast. And I also want to thank him for the technical assistance he's given me over recent weeks. So thank you, Ted. And we'll look forward to seeing all of you next week on Dead to Rights, the podcast video. Dusty road, a man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my eyes gold. And I told you what you told me. We'd never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides, let it rot.